Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. This Saturday, the 15th of May, marks the Nakba for Palestinians, which means catastrophe in Arabic. Each year, it is a day of commemoration and protest against the campaign of terror led by Zionist paramilitaries as part of the Proclamation of Israel in 1948. The Nakba resulted in over 700,000 Palestinians being expelled from their land, and it paved the way for the chaos that has engulfed Israel-Palestine ever since. 75 years on, the Palestinians living in the occupied territories are still suffering under the iron heel of the imperialist Israeli state. So at this talk, given a meeting of Socialist Appeal members in East London, Khaled Malachi from the Socialist Appeal editorial board discusses the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, the crisis in Israel-Palestine today, as well as how we as Marxists approach the question of Palestinian liberation. And before we get started with the talk, if you'd like to join Socialist Appeal at the Free Palestine demonstrations that are taking place across the country, and in particular in London, then get in touch with us using the link in the show notes of this podcast. Without further ado, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, brought to you by Socialist Appeal. Well, yes, comrades, uh, the chaotic situation in Israel-Palestine is one of imperialism's worst ever crimes. The whole history of the conflict is one of massacre, of war, of displacement and untold suffering. Each imperialist peace that has been negotiated has been done so in bad faith to the Palestinians and has revealed the cynicism of the so-called international community at every twist and turn. And before the creation of Israel, it was foresaw by Marxists at the time, such as Leon Trotsky, that the creation of a Zionist state of Israel would be a bloody trap for both Jews and Arabs. The Zionist answer to the so-called Jewish question one of the Jewish population migrating to Palestine in search of a homeland after suffering persecution and a long history of pogroms was no answer at all. And Trotsky foresaw that if a Jewish state would be established in Palestine, it could only be done so by violently displacing the Arab population. And such a state would, be, uh, would lack an advanced industrial base and uh, would uh, require a strong army. And so it would inevitably become a tool for imperialism within the region. And Trotsky described this uh, potentiality in 1940 as a tragic mockery of the Jewish people. And on every level, this perspective has really been borne out. Since capitalism and Zionism have created a living hell on earth for Palestinians, which you see wherever you look, whether it be the struggle for electricity and water or concrete to rebuild after a bombardment in the Gaza trip, uh, Strip, or the question of salaries and jobs in the West Bank, uh, the fight of Palestinians against inequality uh, and policing in, in the Green Line, that is the 1948 border, or the, uh, the fight against the whole districts being demolished in East Jerusalem. You see it on the one hand there. And on the other hand, the promise of a dignified life in Israel for Jewish people, as it was initially pitched, has proved a rather cruel joke. And we are about uh, just under a week away now since uh, the 75th anniversary of Israel being proclaimed. And May the 15th marks the Nakba, which in Arabic translates to the catastrophe. Uh, and this is a day of remembrance, and it's also a day of protest against the, uh, the campaign of terror that was led by the Zionist paramilitaries in the run-up to the establishment of Israel. This campaign saw 531 villagers race to the ground, 11 neighborhoods emptied, 
and more than 700,000 Palestinians purged from the land. And to put this into perspective, that was more than half of the Palestinians uprooted from their homeland at the time. And in the run-up to the, the events of May 48, you saw massacre after massacre take place at the hands of Zionist forces. Vile methods were used, such as poisoning the water supply in, uh, in places like Accra, and also exemplary massacres, uh, such as in Deir Yassin, where uh, they, they tried to strike fear into the hearts of the Palestinians, and by any means necessary was really the guiding principle of the Zionist forces. And all of this now is part of the historical record. You can find it. It's very well documented. You can even read the minutes of the meetings held by David Ben-Gurion, uh, who's the founding father of Israel, if you like, uh, with his uh, with his military apparatchiks, with his military personnel that led up to these events on uh, the, the 15th of May. There you will find the military orders uh, to the Jewish commanders written out for the purge of the Palestinians from their land in the letters of blood and fire, to borrow Marx's expression. And yet today, there is a very wide chasm between fact and fiction when it comes to the establishment of Israel. The Israeli ruling class, 75 years on, go to great pains to conceal the truth because they reveal, uh, they, they fear that uh, a, a spotlight being shone on the brutality of the Nakba uh, and this being revealed would undermine their propaganda. They, they still like the slogan of a land without a people for a people without land. And of course, if their propaganda is undermined, it could severely uh, you know, test their rule and it could lead to a deeper polarization taking place in society, which is already fractured, as I'll come on to a little bit later. And in the past decades, you have seen rafts of legislation and laws introduced to uh, obliterate any trace of commemoration of the Nakba in Israel. If you're an institution, you can be defunded. You can even be penalized for talking about it as such. Uh, so that, that, that's the situation on the one hand. But in Israel today, uh, you will find a rather romantic retelling of the whole affair. The beginnings of Israel are seen as a cause of celebration, and it's used to shore up support at home and to really fan the flames of Israeli nationalism. And one euphemism that they band around is uh, that the Nakba, when it took place, there was a voluntary transfer of Palestinians uh, in the lead up to the creation of Israel. People just left off their own accord. Why people would leave to go to holding pens in foreign lands for decades to come, your guess is as good as mine. But there is, of course, uh, there was no voluntary transfer. This was, in fact, a systematic expulsion of an indigenous population from their land, also known as ethnic cleansing. And uh, the fact of the matter is not just to be found in the history books. It is to be found in the real struggle against the Israeli state and Zionism that takes place on a daily basis. On Nakba Day, on, on May 15th, you will find thousands of Palestinians, refugees in Lebanon, uh, in the West Bank, in Syria, march towards the Israeli borders, and they are joined by millions around the world who sympathize with the Palestinian cause. And for millions today, the founding of Israel remains a monument to the cruelty of imperialism. Israel is really a reactionary uh, bastion in the region that not only denies Palestinians the right to return, but denies a future worth living for those that it keeps under its iron heel. Now, a lot has clearly happened since 1948. And you can see this by just looking at the map. Um, the, the, the partition plan that was drawn up by the United Nations in November 1947 does not look uh, like Israel today. 
And for David Ben-Gurion and those that succeeded him, this was clearly taken simply as a starting point. To fast forward to today, you find roughly 60% of the West Bank, which was supposed to be overseen and, and ruled by the Palestinians under direct Israeli control. The Israeli state continues to control the matter of life and death for many Palestinians, having absolute control over the water supply, profiting from the, uh, from, from the captive market in the Palestinian enclaves, and restricting the ability uh, for, for planning permissions for Palestinians, or simply just bulldozing uh, entire districts and making way for Jewish settlements. So as the reality on the ground shows today, Israeli expansion has increased through the means of brute force. This has happened uh, over the last 75 years steadily through, uh, through the Israeli ruling class's manipulation of, uh, of land ownership through essentially legal smoke and mirrors, and also rapidly under the, cover of, uh, under the cover of war. And a turning point, I think, worth mentioning in the formation of Israel today is 1967, which is where the Six-Day War took place and Israel seized control of the West Bank, Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. And Palestinians in these occupied territories were victims of a constant state of harassment. They were denied basic democratic rights, such as to protest and to vote. And uh, this went hand in hand with the hyper-exploitation of the Palestinians who were drawn into Israel's labor force. And these persistent abuses laid the way to an explosion known as the First Intifada, which in Arabic translates to shaking off or uprising. And this took place in December uh, 1987, where the Palestinian masses rose up with a wave of protests uh, and riots across the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. And this Intifada was really a revolutionary movement that took everyone by surprise. The Israeli uh, security services, the, the Western imperialists, and also the Palestinian national leadership as well. And the significance of the First Intifada remains very popular in consciousness today. And it's very clear to see why. The Palestinian uprising led to the formation of tens of thousands of committees organizing every aspect of the mass struggle against the occupation. And mobilized was a force encompassing hundreds of thousands that were openly defying and also resisting the Israeli state. And so unstable was the situation that the United States had to lean upon the Zionist ruling class to at least pay lip service to a two-state solution in order to try stave off a revolution, or a full-scale revolution, I should say. And in truth, the movement had run out of the control of the Palestinian leadership at this point, who were desperate to apply the brakes. And the, imper the imperialists found their man to break bread with. And that man is, uh, is Yasser Arafat, who some might recognize for, for shaking hands on, uh, on the lawn of the, the White House with, uh, with Rabin, with Bill Clinton behind, uh, you know, hugging them both in a warm embrace. And this, this man was the leader of the, uh, the PLO, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Arafat himself had no confidence in the power of the masses and viewed the struggle purely through a nationalist lens. In fact, he, like many other petty bourgeois leaders of national liberation struggles, felt undermined when the struggle surges forward beyond his control. And he seized upon the radicalism and used this as a bargaining trip uh, in his discussions with greater imperialist powers, in this case, with Israel and the United States. And so Arafat leaned on this bogus peace process uh, that, uh, that finished in 1993 
that was catered by U.S. imperialism. And this, uh, this was an opportunity, essentially, to, to rein in the movement and to regain control of, uh, of, of his leading role. And what essentially this was, was a, an attempt, a conscious attempt to divert the revolutionary power of the mass movement down the blind alley of uh, the two-state solution. And this culminated with uh, the Oslo Accords in 1993, which is 30 years ago uh, today. These accords led to the creation of the Palestinian Authority, which was believed by some, uh, even those on the left, actually, that uh, it was a government in waiting for a new Palestinian state. But as Marx has pointed out at the time, this marked a humiliating betrayal of the Palestinian cause. The accords, in fact, legitimized the main thrust of the Zionist expansion since 1948, abandoning hopes of over overturning the national dispossession and the right of return for the 5.9 million uh, recognized refugees from 1948. And the hundreds of thousands that, of course, joined them after the Six Day War was not even put on the table for discussion. As with all of the peace processes uh, that had uh, happened up until that point have happened uh, after that point as well, they basically bury the Nakba and its victims. And rather than providing a viable basis for a Palestinian state, the agreements handed over the poison chalice to the PA to, uh, to police the, the ghettoized areas of the, of the West Bank, the, the, the disconnected parts uh, of, of what was left of Palestine, and to also police uh, the, the Gaza Strip as well. And so in a way, you see Arafat uh, was, uh, was Israel's uh, main uh, security operator, if you like. And this has led to a, a complete erosion in trust. It's, it's taken 30 years. Many contradictions uh, have been involved in this, but it has led to the Palestinian uh, Authority today being completely diminished in, in its role uh, and uh, people not looking towards it in any kind of way. It's, a mere, it's seen as a mere tool of Israeli imperialism uh, under Abbas's leadership today. <clears throat> and uh, arresting, and it, there's a very clear, clear reason why, arresting, surveilling, and even executing some of your own people was the price that was paid by these petty bourgeois leaders in order to uh, live out their comfortable lifestyles. And also, on the other hand, have the status of being the official leadership of, uh, of Palestine. Meanwhile, Israel continued to flout all of its commitments, all of its key commitments, let's say, to uh, a path forward for, for prosperity between the peoples. And uh, we, we saw in the last 30 years had been proof of uh, the bitter fruits of such a peace. And uh, it shows actually what lies behind the verbiage of a two-state solution. Now, there are some on the left still today that believe that what is lacking in the situation is, uh, is the right kind of pressure from below and the right kind of leadership above for some kind of real uh, reconciliation to take place. That is to say, uh, two-state two solution 2.0. Uh, and this will all of a sudden uh, lead to uh, no animosity between the peoples of uh, the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And underpinning this idea is the idea uh, that uh, Israeli imperialism will somehow grow a conscience, will recognize its wrongdoing, and uh, relinquish all of its conquered territories. And even more ridiculous than that is the idea that the international community, whatever that means, will broker some kind, will broker some kind of peace that is, that is meaningful, that they can play some kind of progressive role in all of this. But I would say that this is naive to the extreme, because how could the international community solve things when they have the biggest track record 
of destabilization, of dispossession, of destruction within the region itself. It, it's akin to asking the enemies of the oppressed to come to their rescue. And it is these imperialist powers in the West, as well as the hypocritical Arab regimes alongside Israel, that uh, have cast a long shadow over Palestine's fate. Now, the, the ideology of the, of the Israeli occupation, Zionism, has evolved historically and finds many different contradictory expressions. But something that I would say runs like a thread from the very early pioneers of the, the Zionist project, such as Theodore Herzl, through to uh, David Ben-Gurion, the, the founding father, through to Netanyahu today, the, uh, the current prime minister, is the belief that Israel is the promised land for the Jews and the Jews alone that it is a sanctuary that must be kept under lock and key. And it is this poisonous ideology in the hands of a rapacious ruling class that has led to the current situation, calamity after calamity, which you can trace before the Nakba to the Nakba and to this very day. And there is an important point in this. The Israeli ruling class could not and cannot tolerate an economically viable Palestine, um, an, an, an independent Palestinian state. And this remains the case to this day. So neither the Oslo Accords or any of the, the roadmaps, the summits, uh, the, the, the agreements that came afterwards were really worth the, uh, the paper that they were written on. And because of this, the Palestinian Authority is really reviled by the youth and by, uh, by the workers in Palestine. They see the, the collaboration of the PA in the blockade of Gaza as the, as the clearest sign of where their true allegiances lie. And this is a very important factor to bear in mind when I come on to perspectives for today. But the sum total of all of the maneuvers have, uh, and accords have resulted in the further marginalization of the Palestinian people. And this paved the way to the Second Intifada in, in 2000, to, to the buoyant support for Hamas in the Gaza Strip, um, where they profited essentially of, of wearing this anti-imperialist mask uh, for a certain period of time, and it's led to the kind of bombardments and uh, and and uh, all of all of the trouble that you can find today. Now, I've had to be very telegraphic about this because there is a lot to cover. Um, but yeah, we we as the chair said, we have published this this pamphlet, which goes into it in a lot more detail with regard to the history, the role of the imperialists uh, in, in Britain of course, playing a very key uh, role in all of that and all of the major junctures and this sort of a thing, which I'd encourage everyone to read uh, and, to, and to buy, of course, as well. And there is a series of, uh, of articles that are being put on socialist.net as well, which will cover the, some aspects of, of the pamphlet as well. But I wanted to get up to the point of Oslo as this really sets the stage for the situation we find today with regard to Palestine. You, know, you have the youth and the working class uh, wanting to overcome this humiliating betrayal after 30 years. And you ha now have to compound this with an unprecedented crisis within Israel itself, where you have seen since the start of the year, deep cracks emerge within the Israeli regime. And this all began, or it was provoked, let's say, by, uh, by the judicial reforms that were proposed by Netanyahu back early at the start of the year which essentially aimed to clip the wings of the Supreme Court and uh, allow more power to the uh, Knesset, to, to the parliament. And uh, this pitted Netanyahu and his government against the majority of the Israeli ruling class. Now, the plans have been stalled for this for now um, under enormous opposition. 
Uh, the Israeli ruling class didn't want to allow for such a flagrant power grab to take place. But uh, having the government lock horns so brazenly with the generals, with the tech industry, with the bosses, and having to back down is, I think, a very dangerous move to make. And they might come to regret this in the future. Because these protests, though having an overwhelmingly liberal character, pro-Zionist character, they brought half a million people out onto the streets in a country that is of nine million in total, which is significant. Uh, of course, there are criticisms that we, we should make of this movement. For instance, they, uh, they, they view the Supreme Court as playing this kind of sacrosanct role, whereas the Supreme Court in reality has no qualms with the dispossession of the Palestinian people. It retroactively approves uh, all of the, the, uh, the settlements. It, uh, it allows basically for, for the outpost to become official and so on and so forth. But uh, I think it does indicate two things that are significant. Firstly, it indicates uh, a very deep ferment within Israeli society itself especially amongst the, uh, the middle classes. And on the other hand, open splits and divisions uh, amongst the, the ruling class itself. And underwriting this whole episode or this whole charade is a very deep economic crisis in Israel, which I should mention is one of the most unequal uh, countries in the advanced capitalist world, where there are very serious internal issues, issues of housing, issues of inflation, and... Uh, these, these issues have been completely sidelined as with the government paralyzed in this open fight, and they haven't even had a chance to discuss the budget yet, as far as I understand. And the, what the movement highlighted really is the deep divisions within the Israeli ruling class, because in particular of the political turn that has happened under Netanyahu's government, which has brought the extreme right wing of the Zionist movement into the mainstream, people that were complete pariahs before have been brought in and playing a very significant role. And this has also ricocheted around the world uh, in its effect. You now have the international support of Zionism uh, beginning to, to wane a little bit. I don't want to make it to, to stress the point too much. But the idea that Israel is some kind of paragon of democracy in the Middle East is very, very hard to defend when you have power grabs such as this one. But this is one in a long line of, uh, you know, one episode in a long line of this saga. Think back to, I think, 2018, when the Jewish nation state law was introduced, enshrining discrimination into the law itself, which, of course, it was always a discriminatory society, but it, it put it in, uh, in, into, into print. And uh, now you have a situation where government ministers are even calling for a second Nakba. Netanyahu, on the one hand, opposes the, the rule of law for his own kind of criminal personal reasons. But the deranged lunatics that he's brought into the fray uh, really expresses something quite deep. That being the total deadlock uh, of, of the Knesset, the kind of the fragility on the political landscape in Israel. And this is epitomized by, uh, by one figure in particular, uh, Ben Gavir, who is the current minister for, for national security. And this man was turned down from the Israeli Defense Force, not on account of his physical health or anything like that but because of his extreme political views. And now this man is heading up a private militia to police over the West Bank. And um, you have, I think, Smallrich as well, the, the finance minister, who is a self-described fascist homophobe as well. So this gang of crooks that have been called upon, amongst them, there is, there is this idea that's very popular, 
that Ben-Gurion did not finish the job in, in 1948, that uh, he didn't wipe out all of the Palestinian blemishes from Israel. He got cold feet partway through. And so it's kind of incumbent on the government to do their best to, to, to kind of, yeah, to, to take it further. And uh, I say, when you look at this, this very shaky uh, kind of coalition of people, you find them almost huddling together for warmth. They, they didn't speak to each other before November last year. Uh, but the, the only thing that really unites them is their reliance on nationalism, of sectarianism, uh, and using these basically to serve their own hands. And this is massively impacting the, the, the Palestinian question, and it, it will do so in the, uh, in the coming period. Now, this year, 2023, has marked the bloodiest start to uh, the conflict in decades. In April, just last month, you had thousands of, uh, of armed Israeli settlers marching onto the streets in the Nablus area, demanding further land grabs and further, uh, yeah, for <clears throat> further occupation in the West Bank. And if you go just down the street from where this reactionary carnival took place, you'll find a town called Huara, which has been plagued by prog pogroms since the start of the year at the hands of these thugs. Now, any, everywhere you look, you really see Palestinians reliving the experience of their ancestors. There are clear echoes to the brutal means used by the Zionist paramilitaries uh, to 75 years ago to, uh, to, the, to today. Then beyond the rhetoric of uh, reactionaries like Ben Gavir, it is clear that for millions, the Nakba never really relented. The occupation, the grinding poverty, the, uh, the, the, the everyday oppression is essentially a continuation of war by other means. And this has escalated over the last couple of years, as, as comrades might remember. There were very big uh, solidarity uh, protests in 2021. And essentially, the, the ruling class in Israel has had to rely on its divide and rule book a lot more um, in order to distract from problems brewing at home. But as the bombardment of Gaza in 2021 showed, the more aggressive the Israeli state is, the more it pushes and pushes and pushes, the more it actually cements Palestinian unity uh, amongst the, uh, the occupied territories and also in the Israeli Green Line. There, the arrogance of the, the Israeli ruling class that thought that it had cowed the Palestinians, that it had divided them and demoralized them, and that no unified uh, mass struggle could emerge really blew up in their faces in 2021 when you saw the general strike take place in May, which was undoubtedly a qualitative shift in the situation. And the brute repression, which every wing of the Israeli ruling class must, must use to rule, contains the potential for a much greater conflagration uh, that can spread across the region, um, spreading like wildfire amongst all of the oppressed and, uh, and the exploited. And you see the impact of, of 2021 not just here in Britain, but in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Canada, in many different places. And I say there's one other uh, reason why the, the general strike was very significant. That being the main motor force for this strike were the networks of self-organized committees that sprung up amongst the youth. And these committees sprung up in spite of the passivity of the traditional leadership. And uh, in many instances, they actually openly challenged it. So despite claims to the contrary by Hamas, by Fatah, by the Palestinian Authority, they were not the drivers of this movement. They were very much driven by it. And all of the accumulated anger and humiliation came crashing down and a unified mass movement emerged. And although this has subsided for now, 
the combustible material beneath the surface continues to gather. I mean, since the start of this year, there have been plenty of warnings of a third intifada breaking out. And this is important because we're discussing this in during the deepest crisis of capitalism. So we need to place this struggle in the wider context at the revolutionary epoch that is, uh, that is opening up, not just in the Middle East, but in the Maghreb, in Iran, in the rest of the world. It is clear that the struggle for the liberation of Palestine, uh, it, Palestinians, is not confined to the borders of historic Palestine. It is linked to the struggle against the reactionary regimes in the Middle East, <clears throat> the so-called friends of uh, Palestine, and Israel's backers in Washington and here in London as well. And it is the task of revolutionaries to draw a balance sheet at the blind alleys that the struggle has been taken down in the past. And uh, this is also something that the article series aims to do. The solution does not lie in finding the most fair line in the sand. When we look seriously at the issues of national oppression, although it has its roots in the events leading up to the Nakba, uh, you can see that it's made particularly acute by the economic crisis of capitalism. So one capitalist state or two capitalist states, even drawn up in the most conceivably generous way to Palestinians, will solve absolutely nothing. As long as Israel remains an aggressive imperialist state, it will continue to negotiate in bad faith and it will demand peace on its own terms. And as long as the issues of housing, of education, of jobs remain and even get worse in, in the coming period, Enmity between Israelis and Palestinians will only proliferate. And this, of course, will be uh, stoked by certain political agents as well. So without a revolutionary program that aims to unite all the oppressed people of the region, uh, this horror show will continue unabated. Without overthrowing the Israeli state, uprooting the poison of Zionism, as well as toppling all of the despotic leaders in the, uh, in the Arab world, that could contribute themselves to the, uh, the oppression of Palestinians, there will be no meaningful peace. And so the program of revolutionaries must expose the divide and rule tactic of the Israeli ruling class and aim to drive a wedge between the Zionist state and ordinary Israeli Jews, who in the last analysis suffer at the hands of the same oppressive system. And Engels once wrote something very uh, profound on this matter. He was talking, I think, about uh, the, the, the oppression of the Polish people. And he said, and I quote, <clears throat> a people that oppresses another cannot emancipate itself. The power that is needed to oppress others always turns against itself. End of quote. And I would say that this is entirely applicable to the situation today. To give but one example, in 2020, Israeli Jews and Palestinians took to the streets against Netanyahu, Netanyahu and the corruption of the Israeli state. And the very border police that were sent to uh, be the hand of law and order and to crack down on the protests were the same forces that uh, were committing the raids against Al-Aqsa Mosque in 2021 and, uh, and only a, a month ago as well. <clears throat> in reality, the continued occupation is a tool used by the Israeli ruling class to divide the working class of the region and play them off against one another. Zionism and fear-mongering over the Palestinians is used by the Israeli capitalists to blur the divisions between Jewish workers and capitalists and suggest that they have the sh same shared interests. And this is something that must be cut across. And the leadership of the Zionist uh, Trade Union Confederation play a completely shameful role in this. Rather than pointing uh, out the solidarity that should be built between the working class, Israeli Jews and Palestinians, it plays total second fiddle to the Israeli state itself. 
And the first prerequisite for any kind of solidarity coming from the organized, uh, organized labor there would be to throw out these leaders, to throw out their prejudices, to throw out their class collaborationist politics. Now, some might say that this is impossible and that there is too much ill feeling between the peoples for, for a solution to ever, ever be found. And some people as well might say that the Jewish, uh, the Jewish working class formed one monolithic reactionary bloc. Now, this is not true whatsoever, and we have to counter this. And there are many examples I can give, but I will, just, I will give just one. Even during the first intifada, where in Israel you could find wall-to-wall coverage talking about Arabs being a mortal threat, and you had uh, Rabin calling for uh, the IDF to break the bones of Palestinian children that were fighting back with their uh, sticks and stones. You did have shopkeepers in Jerusalem, for instance, join the struggle. There was an element of so- there was a, a very small uh, solidarity movement, which shows the possibility of a unified struggle at some point in the future. I mean, to assume that such a thing is completely ruled out is to play directly into the hands of the Zionists and to underline the division that the Israeli ruling class benefit from. Of course, the poison of Zionism, of nationalism, of sectarianism play a very powerful role in the conflict. But as has been shown time and time again, the only successful way of breaking down such animosity is by driving a wedge between all of the oppressed people in the region against the oppressor. It means breaking Israeli society down class lines. The entire history of the class struggle shows that only a correct strategy and a revolutionary program is capable of doing this. Now, cynics will say that this is not practical, but we have had enough of uh, the practical solutions that have been tried and they have been failed for uh, 30 years and even longer to this point. We need only look actually at the impact of the the Arab revolutions, the Arab Springs of uh, 2011, to show the potential for a conflagration to uh, to spread around the region like wildfire. It's over a decade since uh, this happened, but what it what it, uh, what it resulted in was the the, the toppling of four despotic regimes um, and a wave of revolutionary movements that reverberated within Israel itself enough to strike fear into the heart of the Zionist ruling class as well. You had Israeli Jews brandishing signs talking about fighting like the Egyptians. Uh, walking like the Egyptians and so on. And 10 years from uh, ten years on, well, more than 10 years on now, it's 12 years on, uh, from, from, from the Arab Springs, you obviously see that none of the class questions that were thrown up by the movement have been answered. And the, 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 these movements are beginning to, to reemerge on that basis. What the Arab Springs showed is the capability for movement to burst beyond borders and uh, that class problems, of course, affect Israeli society too. As I said earlier, it's one of the most unequal societies uh, in the advanced capitalist world that has very high unemployment. It has a severe housing crisis, and it clearly is in uh, completely fractured after the protests this year, even if they, uh, they express this in a kind of distorted manner. And the last few years have, of course, shown that none of these questions have been resolved in the Arab world as well. If you look at Lebanon or you look at Algeria, for instance, the struggle of the youth, the youth are in revolt in this region uh, because of the dire situation they find themselves in for jobs, for houses, for better education, against the corruption of the politicians and so on. And of course, the Israeli working class is plagued by these issues, too. And in fact, what was lacking 12 years ago was uh, was a revolutionary leadership. 
that had the correct tactics and strategy and sought to link up these struggles in a way that could overthrow both capitalism and imperialism. So simply writing off the Israeli working class can lead us nowhere but a dead end. And to believe that they won't be impacted by the period where on the, uh, we've, we've entered into an instability, a crisis on a world scale, I would say is actually willfully naive. Now, the developments this year alone show that the Israeli state, it has been shaken to the core. And the Palestinian youth have nothing to lose and everything to gain and are not looking towards the failed strategies of the self-styled leaders of the past. And a successful struggle, another intifada, could seriously undermine the basis for Zionist rule. When we look back at the entire uh, history of the region, it proves that revolutionary struggles can and will seriously shake the foundations of sand on which imperialism dominates. And the spiral of reaction that you see when you look at Israel will be cut across by new revolutionary upheavals. And Palestine will continue to be a reference point for the struggle amongst the, uh, the Arab world as well. But the final impetus for overthrowing the Zionist state could come from revolutionary developments elsewhere, such as Jordan, for instance, where mm-hmm. the majority of the population are, are Palestinian. What the general strike uh, two years marked was, uh, was a unified struggle that we hadn't seen in decades. And I would say in many ways, a new intifada is being prepared which must aim to break Israel down class lines and appeal to all the revolutionary youth and workers of the region to do away with capitalism and imperialism. And it's on this basis of a socialist transformation of the whole region that any worker or radical youth must approach the struggle. It is with this perspective that we put forward the solution of a federal socialist state of Israel-Palestine as part of a socialist federation of the Middle East. This is the only way of guaranteeing uh, autonomy to the Jewish uh, people and uh, the Arabs as well, that is not based on any kind of uh, oppression whatsoever. The festering problem of the right to return to all those that are di- displaced and dispossessed can only be eliminated by destroying the menace of Zionism. And the precondition for refugees to be let back out of their uh, squalid camps and uh, live a, a dignified life uh, is for the Israeli regime to be overthrown and to be replaced by a socialist state. The pooling together of the resources under an economic plan that is uh, democratic, that is run and managed by, uh, by the working class, would provide the basis for a rapid economic development to take place. And I would say this is the only way to ward against a second Nakba. It is a revolutionary route forward. Only on a socialist basis would a solution to the problems of housing, of jobs, of healthcare be found. And only on this basis could both the national questions for Jewish people living in Israel and Palestinians be solved, leading to the collaboration between all peoples and nationalities. The watchword must be intifada until victory for a socialist federation of the Middle East. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. We hope you've learned a lot from it. And before you go, if you'd like to learn more about the Marxist approach to the Israel-Palestine conflict and how we approach the fight for Palestinian liberation, then you'll be pleased to hear that we have a brand new pamphlet, Israel-Palestine, A Revolutionary Way Forward, which deals with many aspects of this question, including the history of Israel-Palestine, the situation in Israel-Palestine today, as well as an assessment of the tactics and strategy that have been used in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. This pamphlet is around 100 pages long, and it features brand new material from writers across the international Marxist tendency, 
It's now available to order for just £4 from wellreadbooks.co.uk. And if you agree with the ideas that were put forward in this talk, and you want to join the fight against imperialism, against oppression, and you want to join the fight for world revolution so that we can overthrow our imperialist oppressors, then you need to get organized in the international Marxist tendency. The IMT is a growing communist organization which has a presence in over 50 countries across the world. If you want to join us in the task of building Marxist leadership across the world, then get in touch with the international Marxist tendency today. You can get in touch with us using the link in the show notes of this podcast or by heading to socialist.net forward slash join. There's never been a better time to join the struggle for revolution. And on that note, we'll end this week's episode of Marxist Voice. Thanks very much for our listeners for tuning in and make sure you stay tuned for future episodes covering Marxist theory, revolutionary history and a Marxist analysis of current events brought to you by Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal.